You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me as always in Southampton, England is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. Not bad. I hear some birds. Uh, I think that's actually um, the neighbor mowing. So I'm going to have to do some creative editing with this show. All right. But we do have a really good show. We have an interview coming up in just a minute with Craig Fisher from Fort Wayne Curling Club. He's going to tell us the really personal story of how he got into curling and the journey his club went through going from curling on arena skating ice to one dedicated facility with three sheets to then another dedicated facility, this time with four sheets, all in the span of about a decade. It's a pretty crazy ride, uh, and it's something that I think a lot of clubs around the U.S. can probably learn a lot from. Yeah, and it's kind of great to touch base with Craig. So we both met him back in 2013 because mm-hmm. his club, and I think it was he, he was in charge of the event, um, hosted the the first Arena Nationals Curling Championship. And as he says to the podcast, uh, they weren't allowed back because they got uh, dedicated ice almost right away. That's right. They graduated yeah. So, yeah, and it's a great story. I think it, it shows what's possible when when a group of people really kind of pull together and decide decide they want to do something. So before we get into that interview, we do have kind of a lot of curling news to cover here. Jonathan, you want to go through uh, what's been going on in the curling world before we talk to Craig? Sure. What do we got? What do we got, Ryan? Right. So first up. We have kind of, I don't know if I would say a surprise retirement. It kind of surprised me, but Elena Stern from Team Stern in Switzerland has announced that she is retiring from competitive curling. She's a 26-year-old skip who had a Grand Slam title under her belt, and she won the 2020 Swiss title. Unfortunately, her team did not get to play at the 2020 Worlds. Um, Basically, she said she's just ready for the next chapter of her life. Um, more importantly, she's been a voice for LGBT issues, not just in curling, but also regarding an upcoming vote in September where Swiss citizens will get to vote on if gay marriage will finally be legal in Switzerland. Uh, if you haven't seen it, please check out the panel discussion on LGBTQIA plus inclusion that was hosted by the Global Initiative for DEI in Curling that Elena participated in from May. Uh, You can find that at the Global Initiative's YouTube channel. Um, While uh, Elena Stern is retiring, the fourth from her team, Briar Herleman, uh, will continue to focus on competitive curling, and she has joined up with the team skipped by her sister, Corey, and she's going to throw fourth stones for that team. Jonathan, were 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 you surprised by this as I was? Uh, yeah, I mean, to win a slam and then to step away at 26 is a bit surprising, but we, we never know what's going on in people's lives or what other opportunities may come up. So we wish her kind of best of luck with the next stage for sure. But uh, I, I suspect we'll see a, a shuffle in Switzerland, kind of like we did in Canada 
at the end of uh, at the end of next season, right? What we see at the end of every quad, but we'll probably have to see how things shake out for the other teams. Do you think this will be a trend? Do you think we'll start losing players at younger and younger ages in competitive curling? Uh, I mean, I think it depends what we mean by competitive curling, but it, it does seem like a lot of the national teams are going to kind of a pro model where you're you're basically paid to be a full-time curler. And if you're not picked up by your national program in your early 20s, it does kind of ask the question of what else you're right. Um, and that, you know, if, if you're not being paid to curl and your competition in the country is being paid to curl, the, the professional ones are just going to get a lot, lot better. And then the question is, how much of your career can you afford to put on hold? Uh, moving to Saskatoon, the four curling clubs in Saskatoon are in need of financial support to survive. The four curling clubs there have received options from the city to address the financial strife they are in following the COVID-19 pandemic. However, due to previous property tax hikes they have received from the city, they believe that none of the four options are enough to help keep them afloat, and most wouldn't go into effect until 2022. Uh, Granite Curling Club GM Steve Turner told CTV News a hybrid of two of the options, where clubs would receive a break on the previously increased property taxes until a recreation and sports grant program is enacted would be the best option for the clubs. You can read this full story at saskatoon.ctvnews.ca. Yeah, that's a that's a kind of Canadian specific problem. I, I remember back in back when I was living in Canada, a lot of clubs kind of have been on land for for decades, if not a century. And quite frankly, like the the property values in a lot of these places shoot up, especially if they're in city centers, right? And so at some point, the the property tax may become so large as just taking a significant bite out of the operating, but it becomes difficult for the the club to operate. Uh, I remember that was actually always a, a a bit of a problem at my club growing up was was how high the property taxes. News out of Maine here in the U.S., where Belfast Curling Club in Belfast, Maine, uh, recently discovered that a pipe had burst. Uh, this flooding that resulted from the pipe burst caused significant damage to their bar and warm room. There's a few rooms in their club that are just going to have to be completely gutted. So they've actually had to start a GoFundMe to try and help raise some of the money to help finish this refurbishment. Uh, they said that all in all, there was about $250 or $218,000 worth of damage. And then after the insurance settlement and the portion that the club feels it can contribute, uh, it looks like they're going to have to either raise or borrow approximately $150,000 to get their club back up and running. Uh, you can find more details and find the GoFundMe at BelfastCurlingClub.org. So good luck to Belfast Curling Club there in Maine. Yeah, hopefully they'll get that sorted out. Uh Kind of a cool launch here. Some of the folks that we've talked to on Twitter a lot are the folks who run the Curling Robots Twitter account. And one of the people behind that account has now launched a new program uh, to support uh, LGBTQ plus and uh, BIPOC people in curling. Uh, you can find uh, her new initiative at LGBTQ underscore POC underscore curl on Twitter. 
uh, and they're just looking to share resources and share stories and uh, kind of just help so one help support LGBTQ plus and BIPOC people in curling, but also kind of help educate um, those of us who who need to be educated on their experiences and what we can do to, to be more inclusive here in the sport. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm trying to add that account. <laughs> just logged on to my Twitter <laughs> account to add it. <laughs> when was the last time you were on Twitter? I think it's just the bot that posts all of your academic papers. That's all I've seen. Oh, uh, I think, no, I was I actually got quite involved in a conversation with some swanky academics. <laughs> you, would, you would probably be bored by it. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised they weren't. Huh? Um, <laughs> I said, I'm surprised they weren't. Um, anyway, going down to New Zealand recently, New Zealand held uh, their curling nationals. The women's champions were skipped by Bridget Becker. They went 4-0 in a double round robin meeting. A championship game was not necessary. Uh, she skipped the last new, uh, team that New Zealand sent to the PACCs way back in 2017. So hopefully we'll see the New Zealand women back at PACCs here sometime soon. Um, on the men's side, Sean Becker beat Anton Hood for the men's championship. Sean is the older brother of Bridget and Scott Becker. Uh, he was also the skip of the 2019 New Zealand national team at PACC. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Scott was the skip of the 2019 New Zealand team at PACC's uh, hood played on that team and also represented New Zealand at the 2021 mixed doubles worlds. Uh, New Zealand does a national team selection. So these are not necessarily the teams that are, that you would see at a hypothetical 2021 PACC. Yeah. And it's good to see a, a national championship going. Uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get the PACC's back this autumn. Uh, moving on to, our final bit of curling news, and it's another national tournament. Uh, this time, the team that wins would be the team that would represent their country at the PACCs, and that is the Korean Championships. They get underway June 23rd at the Ganyong Curling Center, uh, which hosted the 2018 Olympic Games. It's going to be held in three segments. The first segment will run June 23rd through 28th. The second one will run June 30th through July 2nd. And that second segment will scale down to just the top four teams on the men's and women's side. And then if necessary, a third segment would be run July 4th through 7th. So the way that's going to work is if the same team wins the first and second segments, then that's going to be your Korean national team uh, for the next year. And if two different teams win, then you're going to have a best of seven that gets run July 4th through 7th. And so the reason this tournament is important is it's going to determine the team that is going to be Korea's representative throughout this entire curling season. So this is the team that would go to PACCs. It's the team that will go to the world qualification event. It's the team that would represent Korea at the Olympics. And it's the team that would go to the world championships in 2022. So a big tournament, especially for a country that has seen a lot of success lately, especially on the women's side. Um, on the women's side, you have kind of three favorites, which is Kim Eun-young, Kim Min-ji, and Kim Eun-chi. Those are your three favorites. Uh, Kim Eun-young uh, beat uh, Kim Eun-chi in last year's championship. 
Team Kim is obviously the team that won silver at the 2018 Olympics. They then recaptured the Korean championship last year. They are your defending champion. They went seven and six at Worlds this year after starting 0 and 4 and missed the playoffs on head to head tiebreakers. Thus, the Korean women will have to go to the world qualification event. Kim Lun Chi won in 2019 and finished third at the 2019 PACCs, uh, but Worlds were canceled that year. She did qualify for Worlds by going 8 0 at the world qualification event, but obviously. COVID-19 had other plans for that team. And then finally, Kim Min-ji. Kim Min-ji, this is the team that um, that we recently saw at World Juniors. They're the team that we recently saw at the two Grand Slam events that were held in the Calgary bubble. Uh, she last won Korean Nationals in 2018. She won the Pacific Asia Championships that fall and then went on to win bronze at worlds and she has a 2016 world junior bronze in 2020 world junior silver to her name so at 21 years old uh, kim minji has accomplished a lot so it'll be really interesting to see if she's able to topple the 2018 olympic silver medalist uh, kim unjung uh, to become Team Korea. So it's, I think that that's definitely a tournament to watch because the team coming out of the women's side, one, should qualify for the Olympics, and then two, should be one of the favorites at the Olympics, at least to medal. All three of those teams are really strong. I, I've, the Olympic qualification event, though, is going to be brutal because you also have uh, mm-hmm. Team GB in there, right? In Japan. In Japan, right? And so I guess in theory... All three could go, but there's not much margin for error. So uh, that'll be that'll be interesting to see. I, I have to say, I love the best of seven format. I like to see a bit more kind of uh, series play in curling. So I kind of like the way to use that as their final decider. I know the Russians might be might be an interesting format for other events. Yeah, uh, especially for determining your your Olympic your Olympic team. Didn't the Scots do that? At one point, didn't they have a best of five or a best of seven to dis- to determine who was going to be Team GB at a recent Olympics? Yeah, didn't they? Maybe twenty fourteen. Because yeah. la- last time it was it was just straight up selection. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they have in the past used like a, a series. Uh, other names to watch on the women's side: uh, Shin Ga Young. She played third on the team that finished fourth at last year's Korean Championships, and she's now skipping her own team. And then Yi Yoon Che, uh, this is an 18-year-old high school skip who went two and four at last year's championship. Uh, she also won the national high school competition that was held in May in Korea. Uh, unfortunately for her, I believe she is in the same pool as Kim Eun-jung and Kim Eun-ji. So it's going to be tough for her to crack that top four to make the the second uh, stage of the Korean championships. On the men's side, so this is interesting, Jonathan, and I think that this kind of makes Korea one of the dark horses on the men's side as we start looking at the Olympic qualifier and in the Olympics is Kim Soo-hyuk and Kim Chang-min have joined forces. So these two skips 
had combined to win nine Korean championships in a row before Jong Yong Suk won last year's Korean championships. So you had nine in a row that were won by these two guys. They are now playing together with Kim Chang Min, who was the skip of the 2018 Olympic team for Korea, joining Kim Soo Hayek. I think that this team should be the overwhelming favorite to win the Korean championship. And then if they do, I think they'll be very formidable at the Olympic qualifier and then potentially at the Olympics too, because back in 2018, Kim Chang Min was, I think he was one game away from getting into a tiebreaker. I think he was like the last team out of, of, of course, there was a tiebreaker at la- on the men's side at last year's Olympics. So I think he finished six just out of the outside of that tiebreaker. So you put these two guys together, and I think it's kind of a formidable team. You mean, you mean in terms of qualifying for the Olympics or in terms of winning the Korean championship? Well, no, I mean, I'm talking about for qualifying for the Olympics and then potentially making playoffs at the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think, I think we've seen, uh, you know, just the general rise of Asia and the, the greater parity we saw at both world championships this year, all three world championships. Writing off any of the top 12 countries, that, well, maybe top 10 countries in the world right now, I'd say. would be. And then looking down the line at Worlds in 2022, it's a Worlds that's going to be held after an Olympics. We usually see kind of a watered-down field there. They would be there as the Korean champion. I, th- I think that there's the potential there for them to finally win the first men's medal at a Worlds for the Pacific Asia region. And they finished fourth, right, at the last, in 2018? Korea finished fourth, right? I believe so. So, yeah, there's precedent for them having a good good showing in that uh, mm-hmm. Olympic year, Worlds. Uh, other names to watch on the men's side, uh, Jong Yong-suk, uh, he won... Uh, last year's Korean championship, and then went two and eleven at Worlds. Uh, Yi Kai Jung, this is the former third for Kim Chang Min. He's teamed up with another skip that's had some success recently in Korea, named Bak Jong Duk. Uh, he skipped his own team for the last couple of years after playing with Kim Soo Hyuk uh, and made a Worlds appearance. Yi Kai Jung skipped the 2017 World Junior Gold Medalists, and then represented Korea in mixed doubles at the 2018 Olympics. So a formidable team there. Uh, This could be your dark horse team, and they'll also have the best uniforms at the tournament, Jonathan. Yeah, I think, I mean, they're, as you said, they're a former junior championship team, very strong. Um, I I think there's depth on the men's side too, right? As we've kind kind of been saying in this rundown. So I think they're... They're kind of a formidable team, and I wouldn't sleep on the other junior. That's right. Uh, a junior team that you're familiar with, uh, Yi Jai Bum. Uh, he skipped Korea at the last two World Junior Bs that you were at in Kisakalio, and he's now uh, joined a team with uh, a guy named Kim Yong Bin, who finished fourth last year at the Korean Championship. So a name you're familiar with. Um, I think he's kind of in in contention there to kind of make that that second stage, but definitely kind of far behind uh, the two teams that have joined forces in terms of actually winning this tournament. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say they're a favorite to win, but they're a very strong team. We've played them once. Uh, and they're a very strong technical team you know, and call a good game too. So they, they certainly wouldn't, um, wouldn't be out of place in this field and could definitely kind of pull a few upsets off and make a good run too. 
right. Other good news is a bunch of games from this tournament are going to be broadcast on the Korea Curling uh, Federation's new YouTube channel. Uh, The name of the channel is in Korean, so it's tough to find in English uh, unless you have the direct link. So we will provide that in the show notes as well as on our socials uh, as the tournament gets underway. Uh, If you do speak Korean, just search YouTube for Curling TV in Korean and you should be able to find it. So it's going to be fun to watch this tournament again. I think that uh, especially on the women's side, um, watching the team from 2018 skipped by Kim Eun-jung. I mean, that's a that's a team to watch for. So if if she wins on the women's side and then uh, the Kim Su Hayek team wins on the men's side, I think you have two very formidable teams that Korea will be putting up against the rest of the world as the season goes on. Yeah, and I, I think the OQE is going to be really exciting. I think this is going to be, you know, I think this is going to be the biggest version of this uh, since they've been running this. So, and Korea will definitely strengthen strong, strong delegates to both men's and women. All right, Jonathan, I'm going to run, run through some bond spiel announcements real quick before we get on to our conversation with Craig. Uh, first up, Cedar Rapids Curling Club in Iowa is back after a storm damaged their arena a couple of years ago. Uh, they are hosting their Cedar Spiel Open Bond Spiel September 10th through 12th with the rare four-game guarantee. Uh, deadline to register is July 31st at cedarrapidscurling.com. Bowling Green Curling Club in Ohio is hosting a Halloween-themed Open Bond Spiel October 29th through 31st with a three-game guarantee and a costume contest with prizes. Registration is open now at bgcurlingclub.com. Charlotte Curling Association in Charlotte, North Carolina is hosting their own Halloween spiel October 28th through 31st with a three-game guarantee, a costume contest, a bonfire broom stacking with s'mores, and that's one of the ways to my heart is s'mores. Uh, Registration opens July 5th at charlottecurling.com. And Ardsley Curling Club just outside of New York City announced the dates for a trio of spiels. They are hosting their five and under spiel November 4th through 7th, their men's spiel February 24th through 27th, and their open spiel March 24th through 27th. Check out ardsleycurling.com for more information. If you have a bond spiel you want promoted on the show, please email information to rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. Are you going spieling anytime soon, Jonathan? I'm going spieling the weekend of July 10th. That's awesome. Aren't you curling that weekend too? The weekend of July 10th. Oh yeah, I am. Hopefully. There we go. All right. Let's get on to our interview with Craig Fisher from Fort Wayne Curling Club. Once again, they are they're a club that that went from arena to a three-sheeter to a four-sheeter, kind of all in the span of, geez, I think about five years there, Jonathan Craigle. Craig's gonna give us the story. Uh, really great to talk to him. So please enjoy our conversation with Craig. All right, we are joined by Craig Fisher from Fort Wayne Curling Club, and he's going to tell us about kind of the unique journey that his club went on in order to get to four sheets of dedicated curling ice in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for, for coming on with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Well, just to get started, it's the same question that we ask um, most of our guests that come on. It's actually one that I stole from a rugby league podcast, but uh, they always ask their first guests, uh, where are you from and what was it like growing up there? Uh, So I'm from Long Island, 
about a town called Sayville, about 60 miles out from New York City on the south shore of Long Island in Suffolk County. Closest large, uh, larger town is a town called Patchog. Um, you know, Long Island is uh, sprawling suburbia. Uh, you don't even know where one town ends and the next one begins. Uh, but you're, you know, a short train ride to New York City, which is awesome. Um, so good place to, to you know, to, to grow up. You know, a, a more difficult place to settle out of college because that area is, is quite expensive. Uh, but uh, grew up there, went to college in Hoboken, New Jersey, overlooking uh, the Hudson River and Manhattan and uh, lived in Hoboken for a number of years. But I've been in Fort Wayne, Indiana now for about 25 years. Wow. And how were you first introduced to curling? Uh, it's an interesting story. So my wife and I are the, the parents of a, of a child with special needs, of a son with autism, who uh, back in you know, 2006 was, was 12 years old. And we were watching the uh, 2006 Olympics, and I believe that was Torino, but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my wife, as, as, you know, any of the strange things I've done in my life is typically due to an idea that she came up with. But she said, you know, I think curling is something that Grayson, my son, uh, could do with us. So, you know, we went on the Internet, found the closest curling club was in Bowling Green, Ohio which at that point was about a two and a half drive, two and a half hour drive each way. And we signed up for, they did two week, uh, two week learn to curls and we signed up for three of them. So we immediately after the Olympics, we curled for six Sundays in a row, myself, my wife, my son, a, uh, my sister-in-law, Gail, and my, and one of the club members, Ruthie Ilnicki, who had been going to culinary school with my wife. And uh, we had a blast and we found it was something our son could do. Um, and we were really excited about it. And as you know, curling season ends shortly after the Olympics, which while the Olympics are a great thing for curling, the timing of the Olympics, uh, likely could not be much worse. Uh, so we had six weeks in and, uh, then they shut down for the summer and the next year they only offered curling for us on Tuesday nights. And there was no way I could drive two and a half hours each way with a 13 year old kid on a Tuesday night. So we gave it up for four years until we ended up starting up a club in Fort Wayne. Wow. Is the, I mean, is the family aspect kind of what made you want to stick with it? Just the fact that you guys could all do that together? A absolutely. The whole reason we started the club was it was something that my son could play with us. And, you know, for individuals or that have children with special needs, there's very few sports that you can play with your child where you can enjoy the game to the fullest, right? If I play basketball with my son, you know, I can't play basketball to the, to my fullest. And, but it's actually a team sport where, you know, I can assist him when he's doing his shot, but when it's my turn to throw, I can throw as if I'm playing in any other game. Um, so it was, we just found that it was a, a unique sport for individuals with special needs to play alongside their parents, sibling or siblings or peers. And, uh, and that sort of ignited the fire in us, you know, so we gave it up after the 2010 Olympics. Once again, my wife idea, you know, we should try again to get something started up here in Fort Wayne. And they had just opened up a brand new ice rink, a three sheet facility, and it wasn't even open yet. Actually, it was constructed, but not yet open. And, and we were able to, to start some discussions with them about, uh, 
about, you know, about starting a curling, you know, curling club within their facility. So were you, was it just you and your wife at the beginning when the club was getting going or did you have other contacts in the area? So we, uh, we went online and we found uh, an individual by the name of Dan McCoy had started a Facebook page and a website for Fort Wayne curling. So we're like, oh, this is great. Somebody's already doing this and we can just tag along. This is going to be awesome. And we called Dan up and, and, you know, he's really excited about, you know, getting a call from me. And, and so we ask him, you know, what status he's in. He's like, well, I just created a Facebook page and a, and a website just to, to gauge interest. I haven't done anything else. Um, but it's interesting in 06, when we, when we, after we tried curling, we, we tried to start something in Fort Wayne and there was only two sheets of ice in the whole town. And Fort Wayne sort of a hockey mad town. There was absolutely no way we could get any time. And it wasn't in the best neighborhood. And, but we had heard about a, a fairly elite curler who lived in town, um, but I was never able to get a hold of him. And, uh, but I tried. I tried for you know, two or three months to try to get a hold of this guy and was never able to do it. Uh, when I spoke to Dan McCoy in 2010, he says, oh, by the way, I've, I've gotten a hold of, of Dr. Greg Eigner, uh, who's this elite curler. Um, so we set up this meeting. I get a note from him the day before the meeting saying, hey, I'm excited to talk to you about curling and blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, my wife says, hi, she used to work with you at Swiss Re. <laughs> so I had actually worked closely with his wife, um, but had never mentioned curling. They had different last names, both being doctors. I had no idea that it was his wife. Uh, and I could have found him in 2006 if I tried. And probably, you know, it's probably fortuitous that I didn't because we probably would have talked got him somewhat excited and it would have fallen apart because there was no really ice that we could get. And, uh, the fact that, you know, our contact waited until 2010, um, meant that, you know, that the timing was right for something to actually happen then. So he remained excited and interesting story, but, but probably fortuitous that we never got to. And so, so how quickly were you able to get the, the arena club going? So it's, it's a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, so we met, you know, Olympics were late February. Um, we met for the first time on, on, and I may be off a few days here, but we met roughly uh, May, uh, March 5th. Um, uh, roughly June 5th, we were on the ice with rocks holding our first learn to curl. And August 15th or 18th, roughly, we held a 40-team bond spiel on on eight sheets of ice. How did you recruit? How did you recruit forty teams to a to a rink that had never had curling before? Uh, you know, first of all, as, as you probably know, curlers love to go to the first bond spiel at a new place. So curlers are just supportive of new clubs starting up. So that was part of it. Uh, Greg had, you know, Greg was, you know, an elite curler that played in the Olympic trials in in uh, 05. Uh, leading up to the 06 Olympics where Fenson won the, the bronze medal. Um, so he had lots and lots of connections in, in the curling community. But I would say, you know, so he was able to get us introduced to a number of other clubs. But, you know, clubs like Indianapolis, uh, Columbus, Bowling Green, uh, Detroit, all were like, hey, new club, let's go, let's do it. So um, it and and. You know, it was it was interesting. The, the whole reason we held the, the bond spiel was because it was sort of a requirement of the rink. When, when we started to talk to them, first of all, they blew us off, said, eh, curling's tough. I get calls all the time about that. Um, 
And we said, no, 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 we're going to start our own club. We're going to get our own equipment. All we need from you is some ice time and a place to store the rocks. So they said, okay, we'll come in and talk. We started talking and, and their one requirement was they wanted us to run a tournament because they, you know, started up, they had just started up, had a new restaurant up there and, and wanted to generate, you know, revenue, food and beverage revenue for the, for their restaurant. Uh, so, so I, I stupidly said, yeah, sure. We'll run a, a tournament. And, and uh, you know, I said, well, how many, you know, we started talking about how many teams and, and I was aiming for 48. So in fact, I was disappointed at 40. Greg thought I was insane thinking any number close to that. And I had Hal McGrady out of Columbus called me up and said, oh, you know, excited. You guys are starting the club. How many teams at your bond spiel? I said, 40. He's like, 14 teams. That's pretty good for a brand new club. I said, no, not 14, four, zero, 40. He's like, holy crap. How'd you do that? You know, it's, we, we've gone into this whole thing. Um, just, uh, you know, somewhat ignorant uh, on purpose, you know, USCA and, and others have put together some, put together some materials saying, uh, you know, how to do these things. And my wife and I purposely didn't look at that saying, you know, we think, and maybe hubris on our part, but we thought, we felt we're just going to do it our way and, and see if we can do it better, if, if we can, if we can build a better mousetrap doing it our way. Um, and, and obviously in, in some respects, you know, we've been successful in that given, given our track record in years. So after the bond spiel, how did you get like the club going? Was it just playing a couple of times a week? Was it, uh, was there any other innovations you tried to get the growth going and, and how many members did you get kind of out of the gate? Sure. So we, we held, you know, right after May, right after the, the first meeting in March, we started holding some, you know, introductory meetings at, at the rink just promoting it in the newspaper, getting people to come out. Uh, and one of the things we did to fund this, right, to fund the equipment is, is we did look, you know, pay us $1,000 now and we'll give you a $1,200 credit with the club, right? We needed money up front. We needed some people to take a bit of a risk so we could go out and buy these rocks and everything else. So we had a number of people that were willing to step up and take the risk and do that. So that helped us fund up the, uh, the, the rocks and the other equipment we needed. Um, we had, so out of those meetings, actually, we, we, we immediately got about 86 people and Fort Wayne for, for people's information is a city of about 300,000 people and, and curling is not well known, right? The only time people know about curling is the Olympics and the American public seems to totally forget about it. This disappears from their consciousness, at least back in those days. And then four years later, they'd be, oh, what's this? I've never seen it again, right? So, uh, you know, curling was was not, you know, we're not coming from the meccas of curling and where everybody knows it and, and things of that nature. So uh, we were actually pretty happy to get 86 people right out of the gate willing to step up and put money down. Um, so we held some, some rookie leagues, some one-hour games. So we had six weeks, but we had three learn-to-curls, three or four learn-to-curls. Um, and then six weeks of one hour games, um, leading up to the bond spiel, which had a four game guarantee. So our local curlers had curled a two hour learn to curl and six, one hour games. So eight hours total in their lives and then curled eight hours that weekend. Uh, myself included, you know, ignoring the, the, the times I'd done it four years previous. I couldn't, I could barely walk up the steps, uh, on Saturday night of that bond spiel. It was, uh, it was, uh. A big task for all, for all of our newbie curlers. So, uh, so then, you know, we did the bond spiel and then we went straight into leagues and we were curling two nights a week. 
like an arena, you know, times aren't always optimal. So we were originally 9.30 to 11.30 on Monday nights. And then we had a Saturday 8 to 10 time. And like, you know, like every arena club, especially with those hours, right? It's tough to keep those people. You need, we, we had four sheets. So you need, you have a maximum capacity of 32 people. We were paying over $300 an hour for ice. We were charging people 20 or 25 bucks a session. We needed to have 30 people on the ice to break even with a maximum capacity of 32. You have new people come and say, hey, we want to join and you don't have anywhere to put them. So that's always a challenge. And, and I would say I've heard you know other things that other arena clubs are doing that that probably were better than what we did. But you know we struggled like every other club to maintain membership. So we were 86 one year and, and 75 the next and 60. And, and then really by the time in 2013 around Arena Nationals, Jonathan, when, when you and I met, um, shortly thereafter, we were like that September, we were 24 active curlers. Yeah. So we had 24 active curlers when we built our own mm. facility. Just so just for like a bit of context, right? So you, you mentioned Fort Wayne's about 300,000 people. Um, aside from the curling, like what is it that, uh, what is it about Fort Wayne that's kind of special? Why do you like it there? And, and why do you think, is there anything about that community in particular that made it ripe for, for a startup curling club? You know, I would say, you know, Fort Wayne's a nice small city. It's, it's been an adjustment for me coming from New York city. Um, and I've been here 25 years and I'm almost adjusted. Um, there it's, what's great about it is it's, it's cheap. It's very inexpensive. Um, and you know, it's somewhat sheltered. So kids can grow up here fairly sheltered compared to many other metropolitan areas, which is, which is great. Um, and in certain industries, it's, it's good. So, you know, lots of, lots of industry in Fort Wayne is, is small manufacturers feeding into the automotive industry. So, um, you know, I ended up here working in insurance and there's only really one major life insurance company. So, um, you know, after I left there since 2004, I've been working virtually, but what, you know, there's, it's, it's a hockey mad town. So there's lots of hockey, um, you know, it, it lacks the diversity of recreational activities that many cities have. And I think that's one of the things that really made it ideal to starting up a curling club, especially in the winter. There's really not a lot from a recreational standpoint, at least back then, you know, we, the city is, has grown significantly in the time I've been here. And even since the time we started the club. So there's a lot more opportunities, um, you know, built a, Spice field house. They built the park view uh, field house that volleyball, basketball, all of those sorts of things. And, and really before we started the club, um, there really wasn't as much of that, or at least if there was, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't well enough known that I knew about it. Uh, so providing a, a, a recreational activity for people during winter, uh, when there wasn't a whole lot else available, um, really worked out well for us, you know, starting up a, you guys also have the best ballpark I've ever been to. It's my favorite one. I've been to like, I've been to like 70 and the one in Fort Wayne is my favorite. Yeah. So they, uh, that happened since we built the, since we started the club, uh, when we started the club, they were at, uh, a small stadium up by the Coliseum, but yeah, they've done, 
one thing Fort Wayne has done, and, and perhaps I uh, skipped over a, a lot, a lot of other good stuff, but they've invested, they've started to invest over the last 15 years significantly in the downtown area. When I first moved to Fort Wayne, you know, downtown was, was, uh, you know, business and then, and then a ghost town, mm. but they've really started to invest in downtown in a, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, one of the biggest things was, was putting the, the ballpark downtown and it, it is, it is one of the top minor league ballparks in the United States and, and has won awards and just a lot of fun for sure. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can, they're just getting started. They've just started back up. You know, they didn't run at all last year. So hopefully uh, they can recover from, from COVID and to kill it as they have been over the last number of years. So correct me if I'm wrong, but if by my memory, even before you had a dedicated curling club, you were hosting not just that 40 person bonds peel, but like an actual WCT event. And didn't you, I think you even had Eve Muirhead bring your team to, to Fort Wayne or so. Yeah. So, uh, so what happened is, you know, we ran the, the bond spiel, the, what was called the Fort Wayne summer spiel for a, a couple of years. And, and Greg, you know, was a, was a driving, was and is a driving member of the club. And, you know, he's an elite curler. So he had an interest in, in running a cash spiel. So we started probably in 2012, maybe it might've been 2011 uh, or 2012, we started running a cash spiel component. So when we started this summer spiel, we ran an open because if you're a brand new club that has only curled for six hours, having a full open, uh, you know, and getting killed by everybody isn't fun. So we did an open and a five and under division within the, the, the summer spiel each year. And then in, I don't remember if it was 2011 or 2012, we added a, uh, a cash spiel. And in fact, one of the winners of the cash spiel, it was probably 2011 that we started it. But I think in 2012, the cash spiel was won by none other than Scott McDonald, um, which is pretty cool to see him years later in the briar. In 2013, and, and when we started doing that, not only did you know, Greg get organized and, and bring his, you know, a lot of his contacts in, he also brought Jerry Gertz in, which, which helped quite a bit. So Jerry was there doing a, a number of things in, in you know, a couple of those years. And then in 2013, which was the start of the Olympic, you know, cycle, you know, last year towards the Olympics, um, USA Curling approached us. Um, we had just run or we were running Arena Nationals when they approached us. We hadn't run it yet, but they, they approached us about running a women's spiel, women's cash spiel. And one of the one of the eccentricities of of the, the order of merit points is that um if you can have open cash fields and men can earn points, but if women compete in, in an event with men, they don't earn order of merit points. So it has to be a women only event for them to order to win order of merit points. So they asked us to run an event given, you know, the success we'd had with running the cash field, et cetera. And, and we were like, yeah, we can do that. We're never going to fill it. And they said, don't worry, we'll fill it. And, so they had a requirement that all four teams that were then eligible to become the U.S. Women's Olympic team. So Courtney George's team, um, Allison Pottinger's team, Cassie Potter's team and Erica Brown's team were required to attend the event. Um, Eve Muirhead. So Derek Brown reached out to Eve Muirhead and got her to attend. And it just so happened that um, that the Chinese teams were practicing in Blaine. And they were able to get them to come down. So Bing Yu Wang came down uh, with 
uh, with the, the Chinese B team at the time. So we had those four U.S. teams, you know, uh, Muirhead, the two Chinese teams. And then, you know, with that sort of caliber, lots of interest in other teams in, in sort of having an opportunity to play against those people. So, so yeah, we, run a, we ran a 10-team women's uh, cash field that year, a 10-team women's, a 10-team men's, a 10-team open, and a 10-team uh, five and under. Uh, so that was 40. The year before, actually, we ran a 60-team bond spiel on 12 wow. sheets of ice. Once again, you know, total ignorance on our part of, of what, a, what a Herculean task that is until after the fact. But, yeah, so we ran 40 teams, 48 teams, 60 teams, and then 40 teams in the four years we ran that. And in the last year, we had all of those Olympic teams. And in previous years, you know, uh, John Benton had played in the event. Matt Hamilton had played. Um and uh, Tyler George had played, Chris Plies, uh, you know, so we'd had, you know, elite curlers, people on the rise, the Dropkins. So Corey and Steven Dropkin played and actually Corey won our first. So it must have been 2011 that we ran our first one because Corey and Steven Dropkin came in with their team and they ended up winning the cash spiel the first year. And then Scott McDonald won it. So, yeah, we did some we did some cool stuff, plus hosting arena, the inaugural uh, arena, arena nationals. Um, which six months later we were ineligible for. So we hosted it and then could never play it again because we had built a dedicated facility you know, six months later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that brings me to our next question, which is at, at what point did you guys decide it's time to start pursuing a curling only facility? You know, so, so Greg having curled on dedicated ice his whole life, you know, quickly uh, realized that arena ice was, was suboptimal especially for people at, at his level. Um, so he'd been pushing for a while of, you know, when do you think we could get dedicated ice? Um, to some extent, I, I would imagine, you know, he was starting to think about how, how much longer he wanted to curl on arena ice um, because it's, it's uh, uh, you know, for somebody at his level, it, would, it could be pretty disappointing. Um, and, but it really wasn't until we started to look at the next Olympic cycle. It was in early 2013 and looking at the upcoming Olympic cycle, looking at how our membership had decreased year over year. And the fact that we likely wouldn't get up, we wouldn't get sufficient ice time during the Olympics to run enough, learn to curl, to get up above that level. And we decided that I personally didn't have an interest in fighting for another four years to keep a club afloat in the arena model. So we either needed to build a dedicated facility and hope they'll come or the club was going to, you know, fade into oblivion and we weren't willing to do that. So early in, in, you know, I would say looking back perhaps March of 2013, we started to, to build out a business case and start to look at facilities. And I think it was during arena, uh, no, it was during the, uh, and the, the summer spiel in in August that we had found a facility and did an open house for our members to come out and look at it. But we probably spent four or five months looking at facilities and, and building the business case. And, you know, we started with the idea of we'll build something from scratch and and quickly realized it wasn't economically feasible for us, uh, but found, you know, after talking to Portland and Columbus, which were then the two warehouse conversion um, locations that, that were, that had been completed, 
we realized that that was a model that we could make work, you know, from a fiscal perspective. Yeah. At that arena nationals, I remember one of your curlers and I mean, shoot, it may have been you, it's been eight years. So I don't, <laughs> my memory is starting to fade, but, uh, someone from your club was talking about pursuing the concept that you guys dubbed legal ice. Uh, can you kind of explain what that was and what advantages it had for your group? Sure. So, you know, as we were building the the business case, um, you know, we it, it was a pretty daunting task, right, to to be able to fund all of this. And so, from the outset, we sort of we sort of settled on a concept of of legal ice. We're gonna build. We're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna get ice such that it's legal that we can occupy the building and everything else we're going to worry about later. So we didn't, you know, we tried to set people's expectations that, you know, we're not going to build the Taj Mahal right out of the gate, but we're going to do what it takes to get legal ice that can legally be used and then build from there. Um, in the end, uh, we were successful enough with our fundraising and or uh, some of us were stupid enough to put in enough cash of our own uh, to, to do much more than that. Right. We, we built a, a pretty nice club, um, and, and abandoned the concept of legal ice. But the idea was even going just to an ice rink with not much around it, where the ice is dedicated is better to grow the club than an arena model where you're dealing with bad ice time, poor quality ice, expensive, you know, per hour rates, et cetera. But the model at the outset was let's get in someplace where we can have our own ice. We, you know, we may not be able to raise the funds to build out a nice warm room and everything else. But once we start curling on, on dedicated curling ice, it'll be easier to grow the club and then we can fund all the other things. So that was sort of the concept of legal ice. So, so how did the fundraising go for you guys? Was it primarily like just the membership or were you able to reach out to the community as well? You know, the challenge is, is uh, curling wasn't all that well known in the community back then and, and, and still isn't to some extent, but we've, we've certainly made inroads in that regard. Uh, so it was primarily funded through members, um, you know, a few corporate sponsorships that were fairly low level. We tried for, grants and, and some other things. Um, but, um, you know, grants are tough because very few of them support capital projects. Mm. Most of them are program based and, uh, you know, and, and people didn't know about curling. So going to a business and saying, yeah, you should, you should fund some of this and, and get advertising on the back end, um, you know, is a bit too much of a stretch. So, you know, there were a number of our club members, you know, five or six that were willing to, to give 20 grand a piece, uh, a couple that gave significantly more and, you know, quite a few that gave less, but through all that, we were able to come up with, I think just shy of 300,000 to, uh, to get that first facility built. And there was some financing of, of the ice equipment. Um, and obviously it's, it's a rented facility, so you didn't have upfront down payment costs or anything like that. We were able to make it happen for about two seventy five. So you guys hit the commercial real estate market. What were you looking for other than obviously size? Obviously, a building large enough to get uh, curling sheets in there. Were there was there anything else on your checklist that you were looking for? Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a few things, right? You know, obviously wanted. Uh, our goal was viewing of the ice from the end. 
as opposed to the side, because I, I believe it is optimal for spectators to be looking down the sheet of ice as opposed to looking at it from the side. We wanted, uh, you know, a, a decent, uh, you know, exposure. You know, we wanted to be in a, in a major area. We, we, we would have taken whatever we got, right? But we would have preferred to have been on a reasonably major thoroughfare and, and allow us to get some exposure. You know, those were, were probably the, the two big things. The, you know, we got, we went, we probably looked at 50 different places mm -hmm. and, and really the one that we found that really worked. I mean, we, we looked at everything from, you know, distribution centers that had, you know, 25 garage doors ar around it and then figuring out how we're going to insulate all of that to uh, an old bowling alley um, that was about two lanes short of what we needed to really put in uh, curling ice there. Um, and then we also, the other concern about that is there was a church across the street and there's some arcane uh, alcohol laws in Indiana where you can't get a liquor license within, you know, a thousand yards of a church hmm. or something like that. So that would have, uh, that would have been a little bit of a challenge, but, um, but the place we ended up getting was, you know, a hundred yards South of the ice rinks that the ice rink that we'd been dealing with on a major thoroughfare, um, you know, the downside is it looked like a strip mall from the outside. When you drove past it, it didn't look like there was a curling club in there. It just looked like a shop. So everybody drove by and said, oh, that must be where their offices are and they must curl at the, at, the, at the ice rink. But in fact, there was a warehouse behind it that was not visible from the road. Um, so that, I mean, that was probably the biggest downside of, of, you know, the facility that we got other than, you know, three sheets is, was the sort of the capacity. But um, but, you know, we got really, really lucky in that it was so close to the to the area, you know, that we used to curl at. Nobody could say, oh, it's too far now. You know, if we, if we had something on the south side, somebody coming from way up north may have said it's too far. But literally, you know, 100 yards from our from our ice rink that we started at. So that we got really lucky there. So can you take us through the conversion process? Uh, so what was the hardest part about taking this building and turning it into a curling rink? Uh, boy, uh, it, 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 uh, the, the hardest part was getting volunteers, right? So we had 24 active members. You always get 20% of your volunteer of, of any group doing significant volunteering and, you know, a significant portion that don't do anything. So I, I would say labor, you know, we tried to do as much as we could ourselves. Um, we, uh, we were able to take a friend of mine who was in the construction industry and convince him to help us in exchange for free curling. <laughs> and, uh, so his firm ended up being the general contractor for us for free. Uh, so that was one way we saved money. Um, you know, it, we had what we have to do, right. We had to take, we had to do demolition, which we did ourselves. Um, there's certain things you have to contract out from a, from a legal standpoint. So the framing and stuff like that, we had to have all the framing done. We had to have all the, uh, you know, fire suppression and everything else handled. Um, plumbing had to be outsourced and that sort of stuff. We guy by the name of Jim Hibbard helped us with the ice. Um, he helped, you know, he's done a lot, a lot, a lot of curling clubs. Um, you know, he had done Columbus, he had done Portland. He's done, you know, probably 30 at clubs after after he did us, or it seems like that. 
Um, so he helped and, and gave us a lot of the knowledge. And then, you know, our construction expert that we brought in gave us a lot of the knowledge. I'd, I'd say the biggest surprise that we had. Um, so you may have seen clubs that have what's called a low E ceiling that it looks like uh, tin foil that sits over the ice and it helps reduce your, your uh, costs to, to chill the, uh, the ice room. Uh, that low E ceiling doesn't go wall to wall. It allows the hot air to go up above it. Um, our facility was sprinkled and you can't unsprinkle a facility, right? If you go into a warehouse and you're gonna change its use, you can't make a building less safe than it was. So we had to continue to have it sprinkled. You can make the case that putting sprinklers over ice probably isn't the, <laughs> you know, the, the most necessary thing in the world, but, uh, but building codes aren't built with curling clubs in mind. So, uh, but anyway, what we found is we had gotten the sprinklers done. We were getting to, to put up the low E ceiling and we find that because it doesn't go wall to wall, we actually have to sprinkle both above the low E ceiling and below the low E ceiling. So, you know, after we had the sprinklers put in, we had to go back and put additional sprinkler heads on there, at, you know, at an additional expense when, you know, when, so uh, something, and we, we ran into the same circumstance in the new facility with, with smoke alarms. Um, you know, you got to do above and below that low E ceiling. If it had gone wall to wall, we would have been fine, but because, Airflow would go up and flames could go up and over. You needed to to do the fire suppression or fire detection both above and below. So, just one of the many things yeah. I've learned in in doing this. <laughs> so, when, once you were able to move into the facility, what were some of the new challenges you faced? Like, what was the what was the biggest obstacle from opening till till about a year in? Say, yeah, I'd say the the biggest thing is that uh, it takes a certain level of work to run an arena club and it takes 10 times more work to run a dedicated club, right? You've got, you got to maintain the ice. You've got to manage the bar. You've got to clean the thing. You've got to, you know, all these other things that perhaps we hadn't really suspected. So, you know, for the, you know, other than the ice, which, you know, we had a, a great team of guys that stepped up from the outset to do the ice. But other than that, you know, running a lot of learn to curls, organizing more leagues, all that sort of stuff fell to me for about the first year. Um, so the amount of work after, you know, you're, you're working, you know, what was I working? I was, I was actually doing my day job from the construction site. So I was there from seven in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. We get done, we're open. And then, you know, there's just as much work practically on the other side of it. So, and, you know, we were challenged in that we started with 24 members, you know, when in, with dedicated ice, we, we grew quickly, right? We opened up a month before the Olympics and after the Olympics, we had, we were back to 80 members. Um, but for that period of time, you know, getting people to step up and do tasks and, you know, that was the challenge. There was a lot of work that needed to be done. And, uh, you know, we were a bit overwhelmed, I would say, with the amount of effort it takes to maintain a, de a dedicated curling club having come from the arena world where you showed up once a week and, and uh, you know, you did a little bit of spreadsheet work to maintain your, your leagues, but everything else you did. And so how long after you were in this new facility, did you decide to move to the next facility to the four sheet? So once again, we never, we never plan anything in advance, right? We just sort of wing stuff. 
um, we were coming up on the five-year renewal. So the lease we had written was a five-year lease uh, with a five-year pre-negotiated renewal, actually two additional five-year pre-negotiated renewals. So in, in essence, the five years was coming up. We needed to, to opt in for that five-year renewal, and we were committing ourselves to another five years. And we were, so when would, that would have been January of, of uh, well, no, probably when, when, when October of 2018. So over the summer, probably early summer, you know, June, July, we, you know, I brought it up with the board and, and we decided collectively as a board that we needed to, to do our due diligence before just signing up for another five years, that we were growing, we were growing year over year. You know, we could foresee an instance where if growth continued and, and jumped a little bit, we would, we would have more people in the club than, than, than was optimal for us. Right. We'd be, we'd have, we'd have to have three draws a night and, and, you know, that isn't always optimal on, on weeknights, et cetera. So we said, well, we need to do the due diligence, make sure there's not something else available um, before we sign on. And we went into it thinking, you know, we're just being good stewards of the club by doing this. And we didn't think we'd, we'd come in, you know, come across anything. Uh, it just so happens 200 yards or 150 yards up the street, literally across the parking lot from the ice rink that we started in, a building had become vacant that had previously housed Habitat for Humanity Restore. So a, a, a store that sold used items for the benefit of Habitat for Humanity. They had built a new facility a couple miles up the road. That building was vacant. It was this odd little warehouse with a little house attached to the front. Wasn't even up for sale, but they had moved out. So we did a little research, saw who the, the taxpayer was, contacted them, said, hey, you know, we'd like to look at your building, potentially interested in it. Um, had a meeting with the guy and, and uh, I, I sort of didn't talk about one of the things we did during the, uh, during the intervening years, uh, growing on, you know, starting the club due to my son with special needs. We had actually started up a special needs curling program and, and we have a grant from a local foundation that pays us, you know, anywhere between 15 and 20 grand a year to run a league for individuals with special needs, whether it's physical or intellectual disabilities. Um, and it's, you know, a passion of mine. It's, it's how my son plays the game now. Um, and, and something that, you know, we take great pride in when we went and visited and looked at the facility, you know, I'm in sales mode trying to just talk about everything we do. So I talk about, Oh yeah, the special needs curling program that we run, blah, blah, blah. Turns out that guy has a 30 year old son with autism. And he loved the fact that we were doing things with individuals with special needs. So we saw the facility, it, you know, the warehouse section was awesome. It was perfect for a four sheet facility and a warm room. We weren't quite sure what to do with the house piece of it, but you know, we loved it and we said, Oh, we love this, but we weren't planning on moving. So we really don't have money saved up for a down payment. And, uh, and I'm not sure if we can get a, a commercial mortgage just because, you know, we don't have a whole lot of a, of a credit rating. So the guy actually bent over backwards for us. He said, how about $7,500 down for this half million dollar wow. building? Wow. And he says, and he says, I'll finance it myself at, you know, the low end of the commercial interest rate. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, 
And I said, that's great. Oh, that's wonderful. But boy, we're still going to have to raise like $300,000 to convert this thing. And I don't know that we're going to be able to do that. And, and so he says, well, how long is it going to take? And I'm like, you know, honestly, I don't know. It's, it's going to be a few months. So he literally waited from perhaps March until August and turned down cash offers for us to, to get the confidence that we could make this happen. So we literally fell into, you know, an ideal situation, you know, by the grace of God, um, you know, any other seller, we would have been SOL. Um, but this guy, because we did this, the work with special needs, he wanted to do what he could to help us. He had inherited the building from his dad. He didn't need the money. It wasn't his livelihood. Um, and he bent over backwards for us and it's been awesome. Very, very thankful that, that we fell into that situation. Was so second time through on top of like negotiating the deal and everything, had you learned from the conversion process? Was the conversion process smoother? Was there anything that kind of came up the second time through that surprised you? Yeah. I mean, there were certainly things we learned. There were things that we thought we learned, but didn't learn. I mean, from a design perspective, we learned a lot. So you know, the first facility, it was three sheets, but the warm room area wasn't as wide as all three sheets. But we did take this little 10 foot section and allow you to that. So we sort of built on, raised up part of the warehouse so we could look down all three sheets. But we just had these like four foot by eight foot windows, one for each sheet. And, and really what we wanted to do was was have, you know, a, a fairly seamless difference between the, the ice room and the warm room. So it's wall-to-wall windows, you know, there's door on each side and then wall-to-wall windows at, you know, counter height and above. So you can sit there and there's a little counter. So we, we wanted much more viewable area and not have such separation. Um, you know, we ended up with a, with a much larger warm room. Uh, you know, we, we knew how to do a lot of the construction stuff. Um, I would say, you know, we were right on about 90% of that. There were a few things that we thought we had known and, and remembered uh, and didn't quite do right this next time around. Um, we used a different, I used the same approach uh, by getting some company to provide the general contracting for free, basically let us use their license and some expertise, but, but we acted as the general contractor ourselves. Um, so we were able to take a lot of the learnings over yeah, there were some things that we encountered that were new, uh, but there were some things like the sprinkling or and or smoke detecting above and below the low east ceiling that we were able to to translate, even though we were short. Oh no, by our architects, no, no, it should be fine. You shouldn't have to do that above. Um, we, you know, we went to the to the to the fire inspectors and had them confirm, and and you know, it was right. We needed to do it above and below. Our architects were incorrect. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, we, we, a lot of it was translatable. We took all the ice equipment over other than the insulation under the ice, which had become a little waterlogged. The one thing that we thought we did better on that, but we didn't is really sealing up the, the pond. So in both instances, we just put ice mats down on top of an existing concrete floor and you build sort of a frame around it. You put some liners in, um, it's almost guaranteed that, that you're going to, you're going to perforate that liner somewhere. Water is uh, amazing at finding an escape, right? Any tiny little gap, it's going to find. Um, so we 
we leak even even this time around um, when we melt. You know, there's there's got to be a better way to do it than than the way we've done it. We did more. We did more liners. We put down EPDM, uh, but still the water the water gets out. So um, we wish we could have would have done a better job with that. Uh, it's it's a Herculean task to to try to redo that after you've put stuff in to pull up all those mats and and everything else. So. Uh, we're going to wait a few years before we before we try to do that. And, you know, this time it's at least pressure treated wood underneath. So, uh, you know, less likely to rot, et cetera, if it if it's a, a long term. But typically it's pretty short term, right? It melt during the melt. It floods. And, um, you know, once and it dries over the summer and then when you when you put the water in, you're doing it much on a much more controlled basis. You don't leak that way and, you know, it freezes, so it, it's not causing a rot or anything. So what would you say is the number one thing about your club or your members that have allowed you to do this? Because, like, I've been a member of an arena club in Oklahoma City and then an arena club here in Richmond, and we're, we kind of faced the similar situations you guys have where you go, you know, 80, 60, down to like 24. For us, it's always seemed like just a complete pipe dream. What was it about you guys that just kind of allowed you to push through and get it done and get a dedicated facility? You know, and I, I've been around other clubs that that really haven't been able to do this either. I think in, in our experience, I'm not saying it's the only way, but in, in, in our experience, you need one or two people that are given carte blanche to go and do stuff. Right. If you if you have a board with 11 people in it, you're never going to reach consensus. You're never going to get anything done. So, yeah, we had a board of seven people, but the board basically said we have confidence. We, we believe in what you're doing. Go do what needs to be done. Come back to us when you when you need something. Um, and it wasn't trying to do it by consensus. It's uh, in, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. If, if I had a board of 11 people and I needed everybody in the board to discuss everything and agree on everything and debate everything, we would have failed. So it was a board, the board having confidence enough in myself and, and the, you know, the people that I pulled in to run this thing to say, go and do it, come back to us when you need more money. And, and by the way, when I needed more money, I went back with a plan on how to get it too. So the board, it was pretty easy from a board's perspective. I was also willing to take some of the risk, right? So I signed up personally for the financial guarantee on the lease for the first, uh, for the first uh, facility uh, because I had confidence that, that we were going to make this successful. And if we, were, if we were five grand short in a year, I would have pulled it out of my pocket to pay it just to make sure I didn't get hit with the financial liability of the, the club going under and having to you know, and I had I had gone to some other members and gotten, you know, something in writing from them, not legally binding, but something in writing from them that says they would give a thousand dollars if the club needed it, you know, because, you know, we weren't able to meet our obligations to keep the facility. Uh, you just it, it, it takes chutzpah yeah. and you need to, to get, get somebody that knows how to manage projects, knows how to manage large scale projects, and you just need to get out of their way. Short of that, you're going to have analysis paralysis and you'll be talking about a dedicated facility 15 years down the road. So how's the business model changed for you guys from when you were in an arena club to now? What's the, what's the difference in the, in the business model now? 
Um, you know, it's a lot more arena club. You're, you're just trying to cover your, your ice time fees, your, you know, your, your fees for, for running the leagues. And, you know, generally what we had partnered with our, with our facility such that we didn't really get money from learn to curls, but we didn't have to pay for ice time for learn to curls. So they gave us the ice time for learn to curls. They got the money from it. So if there were only 10 people there, you know, the club wasn't losing money. Um, the club got the longer term benefit, right, of those people once they became members. Um, so it was the, the one bond spiel we ran, which typically we ran slightly at a loss because the food and beverage was so expensive um, and the leagues, running the leagues. Get into the dedicated facility, you, you've got, you know, corporate sponsorships, you've got corporate events, you've got leagues, a lot more leagues. You've got learn to curls generating revenue from that. You've also got, you know, utility costs worrying about how much, you know, the electric is this month and, and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, I would say we went from league fees, league and membership fees being 90% of our revenue to, you know, probably 50% of our revenue. And we're able to get grants. We're able to get, you know, sponsorships and these private events that, that, you know, generate at least probably roughly half the revenue. And what's the reaction been from the community there in Fort Wayne now that you're an established facility has, has new curler growth kind of met your expectations? Yeah. I mean, you always want more, but you know, we're, we're up pre COVID we were up at, you know, a hundred and 110 active curlers with plenty of opportunity for, for growth, you know, still getting the word out. So most of the community still says, Oh, we have a curling facility in town, even though we're on a main drag, even though, you know, we've been on, on TV quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we were very happy and, and have continued to be happy with our growth up until the time COVID hit. And then like every club, right. It's, it's, it's decimating. Um, so we're hopeful that, that will rebound this, this season. And so what are your ambitions once the COVID-19 restrictions end? Are there any programs that maybe you've been delaying that you're now like chomping at the bit to implement? Well, we're certainly, certainly uh, excited to get the special needs curling program back and running because that's, um, you know, that's 15 to 20 grand in, in revenue, you know, from that alone. And then, um, and then our junior program, we had a, you know, really just started to get a junior program off the ground. Um, we had a couple of young youngsters that moved down from Fairbanks and, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty strong curlers, you know, for their age of, you know, seven and nine or, or whatever they are. Um, and then, you know, we've had some new kids come in and then COVID hit and we weren't running it during COVID. So we're excited to get the junior program back up and going. We're excited to get special needs back up and going. And, and we're hopeful to get back to, you know, where we were before, because where we were before from a financial standpoint, you know, the first year wasn't great, but there were, uh, you know, some operational funds that were used to, to finish up the build out. You know, if, we, if we're back to that same type of year without the early shutdown and without the, the, uh, the build out costs, we're, we're going to be in a really good place financially. All right. And then you, we, we talked about 
all the spiels that you ran when you were when you were in arena club can you tell us about the bond spiels you have now and tell us why curlers should put fort wayne on their calendar yeah so um so we run four four spiels a year typically um our first one uh is sort of the the uh continuation of the fort wayne summer spiel uh, we've moved it a, a little bit later we've moved it to around the autumnal equinox so it's now called the fort wayne end of summer spiel um, and that's, you know, a very early season spiel. So September 20th or so before many clubs have, have dedicated ice. Um, so it's a, it's a great early opportunity for, to, to get out on the ice. Unfortunately, it's already sold out this year. It's sold out in, in 48 hours, but, um, but it's a, it's a great spiel and, and a great chance to get on the ice early in the season. Um, after that, we in November, we would typically run, we had been running a, a, a cash spiel, but had challenges really filling that. So we've converted that to a five and under. Um, so we're looking at a five and under event in, in November. So USWCA and, and others, you know, run five and unders in the, uh, you know, January, February timeframe. So this is a bit of an earlier season, five and under. And then we run a, uh, our, the Fort Wayne Summit City Open in March typically the, the first weekend or second weekend of March. Um, you know, another nice spiel. Um, you know, obviously it's amongst a, a sea of other bond spiels in the area, but still quality ice, great facility, hotel right across the street. Um, so you never even have to drive. Brew pubs within walking distance as well. So lots of good stuff there. And, and we've got a huge yard. So uh, we do a lot of outdoor broom stacking now, et cetera. And then the last spiel we do is a, is a women's spiel um, that sometimes is uh, is coincident with the uh, Vera Bradley sale. So if you guys are familiar with Vera Bradley uh, bags and things of that nature, which uh, individuals of the female persuasion, uh, a lot of them like that stuff, they have a big outlet sale. And, uh, you know, we've run that event that same weekend and gotten tickets to to that so they can come in and they can, you know, they can curl and then they can go shop and uh, and then curl again, et cetera. Uh, we've we've had challenges with that spiel for for various reasons. Right. We, sh we didn't run it one year because of uh, because of construction, because we were shutting down the old facility, moving to the new. And then last year we didn't run it due to covid. So. Uh, we really want to get that one back on the map. It's a, it will be, I don't think we've sent the check yet, but it will be a, a USWCA uh, tour event. So, or a circuit event, I guess, I guess they call it circuit. So there's points that you can earn by participating in that event. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's lots of great spiels out there. We think we run a great spiel as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say the, the one that has the most interest is certainly the end of summer spiel because it's before most clubs are, are up and running. All right, Craig, if anyone wants to reach out to you or the club or if they have questions about pursuing their own dedicated facility, how, do, how can they find you and how can they find Fort Wayne Curling Club? Yeah, sure. If anybody wants to, to reach out to me about uh, or the club about, dedica you know, dedicated facility or running a special needs program, uh, one of the things we want to do as part of that special needs program is is get curling to be a special Olympic sport in the United States. It's not. And, uh, and we need more clubs to be running special needs programs. So, um, so if anybody has interest in that, feel free to reach out to me. They can get a hold of me via my email at Craig, C-R-A-I-G at fortwaynecurling.com. That's all spelled out, F-O-R-T, waynecurling.com. 
or give me a shout at uh, the club number 260-739-5182 or uh, email the, the club at info at Fort Wing, uh, sorry, info at fortwingcurling.com or find us on Facebook at the Fort Wayne Curling Club or our website, www.fortwaynecurling.com. Craig, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Uh, I can tell this is a really personal project for you and uh, good luck to you guys uh, coming out of COVID-19 and going forward. Hey, I appreciate the time and, and uh, appreciate all you guys do to, uh, to help clubs uh, and help grow the sport. Right. And uh, it's been, it's been what, eight years since we've seen each other. Hopefully we'll see each other at a bond spiel again, or Jonathan stop by on the Scots tour and, uh, and check us out if you have a chance to, to, you know, go on up to Scotland when we're there. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. We'll try to connect then. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, guys. You guys have a great day. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.